What's going on everybody? Welcome back to Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host as always Ian Barr and today we'll be talking about the man who organized organized crime, Salvatore Charles Lucky Luciano. Before we get into that I gotta give a couple quick shout outs here. First and foremost I gotta give a shout out to Art and Clothing Apparel, um, a brand that this podcast is an endorser, supporter, and partner with. Uh, founded by Gunnar Lindblom, author of To Be a King's Volume 1 and 2 and a close personal friend of mine, and hopefully soon to be my first guest on Wise Guys Hideaway. Another shout out I gotta give is to Scott M. Bernstein, author of Motor City Mafia, and the proprietor of the original Gangster Podcast, which this podcast is a big fan and an endorser of. If you haven't given it a look, give it a listen sometime. Totally worth it. It's very educational and in-depth, and uh, he has great guests. Along with that, I just gotta give a shout out to all my friends and family who are listening. Love you guys. Thanks for all your support. As well as, you know, Boston Rob, Paulie G from New York, Vincent Afra, James Ramirez, Ron Roach, David Randazzo, David Braxpire, you know, all the guys who are, you know, constantly hitting me up in the groups or on social media and, you know, building me up and telling me to keep moving forward and, you know, that you like the podcast. Well, I'm glad, guys. This one's for you. So today we're going to get into the man himself, Charles Lucky Luciano. Born Salvatore Luciani on November 24th, 1897 to Antonio and Rosella Luciana. Uh, Charlie was the second of four children, and he was birthed and spent the first formative years of his life in La Cara Ferdita in Sicily. Now, Luciano's father worked as a sulfur miner, and uh, he worked very hard, actually, to ensure that he could give his family a better life. And uh, in April 1906, he attempted to do just that when he immigrated his family to the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York City. And... Uh, I mean, pretty much from the time he stepped foot off the boat, you guys, Luciano fell in love with America, and especially with New York. Um, he began to chase the American dream at almost, you know, a primitive age, if you will. You know, really really when you should be learning arithmetic and reading to write, he was focusing on, you know, how do I make it further than my parents made it? How do I achieve more wealth than, you know, my parents have? And so at 14, Luciano decides he's going to drop out of school, and uh, he begins uh, his first and only legitimate job, which is delivering hats. Now, it's speculated that during his time as a, you know, hat deliverer, he also began to craft his art of uh, narcotics trafficking. However, I'm unsure if that's 100% accurate or if that's just one of those folklore that, you know, we tell about the mafia. Now, one thing is for sure, though, uh, at some point, Luciano did hit a big, big win in a dice game and won $244, uh, which inspired him to quit his job as a head delivery salesman and to really focus on a career, you know, on the streets, you know, making money uh, the old fashioned way by uh, by being a gangster. Uh, now, you know, this is somewhere around 1911 we're talking about here. And uh, shortly after his, you know, winnings and his taking to the street life, Luciano's parents, you know, sort of see the hoodlum their son is becoming. And so they end up sending him to a truant school in Brooklyn. Too little, too late, guys. I mean, it was already ingrained in Luciano what he wanted to be from, you know, the second he dropped out of school, I'm sure. And if not, from the second he won that money off that dice game. Luciano joins up with the Five Points gang and... uh, really begins to run the streets, you know, I mean, he's running extortion rackets, he's running gambling dens, you know, he's running narcotics rackets, like, he was getting into everything he could, and by way of joining the Five Points Gang, he would also befriend uh, what would be his, I mean, his lifetime confidant, really, uh, Meyer Lansky, 
uh, Jewish gangster from the neighborhood. Now, Lansky and Luciano met on kind of a odd, you know, playing field. Luciano was attempting to shake down the five foot four, five foot five, you know, timid looking Meyer Lansky. However, timid was far from what Meyer was, and he pretty much told Luciano to go fuck yourself. And Luciano respected that, and the two built a camaraderie and a friendship, and I mean, would remain lifelong friends to their dying days, you know? I mean, along with Meyer Lansky, though, some more notable figures that uh, would play a key role in Luciano's rise to power and would in turn themselves end up rising to power would be Vincent Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, another Jewish gangster who Lansky was connected with and who actually would end up fleeing once Luciano, you know, was arrested and uh, kick-starting Vegas for the mob, but that's a podcast for a whole other time. Now, all these fellows were mentored by the same man, and that would be Arnold Rothstein, better known as The Brain. Now, Arnold Rothstein, for those who don't know, is the man who allegedly fixed the 1919 World Series, and uh, he's also the one who convinced uh, Luciano to sort of Americanize himself, you know, change his name from Salvatore to Charles, you know, and, uh, you know, dress very eloquently and, you know, try to um, enunciate and approach people as if you were businessman, a CEO or something, instead of, you know, like a street tough. And uh, Luciano really took to Rothstein, as did Rothstein to Luciano. Uh, I mean, in fact, you know, all throughout the 20s, uh, Luciano would sort of be the protege of, of Rothstein. I mean, I, he was he was there with him through everything. I mean, Rothstein took Luciano literally everywhere he went. Anything that, you know, Rothstein had, Luciano had. And, uh, I mean, that, that mentorship definitely paid off in Luciano's favor. Now, Prohibition takes effect on January 17, 1920. Now, what Prohibition was, was the 18th Amendment in the Constitution, making the manufacturing and the selling of alcohol illegal. Uh, essentially, just, you know, skyrocketing low-level hoods overnight, pretty much. I mean, whoever fucked the pig on this one, guys, I mean, it's just... The, the, the Prohibition era is like the original crack epidemic, except if everybody wanted to smoke crack, because everybody wanted to have a drink in 1920. Uh, especially once you told people they couldn't do it anymore, you know, blue collar guys, hardworking, you know, longshoremen or, you know, union steel workers, things like that. Not to mention, you know, back in the day, the bottle was mother's little helper. I mean, people had big families back then, you know, the, the homemaker, the wife's the homemaker trying to look after all the kids who wouldn't need a shot of schnapps or something like that. So along with being mentored by Rothstein during the 1920s and during the bootlegging era, uh, Luciano would also begin working for a old-time Sicilian Don by the name of Joe, Joe the Boss Mazzaria on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Now, Luciano became a pretty notarized uh, bootlegger as well as a hitman for Mazzaria, uh, so much so that he would eventually become Mazzaria's uh, right-hand man. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1923, Luciano would uh, have his first documented uh, encounter with law enforcement when he would be, you know, caught up for selling a little bit of heroin to some undercover agents. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? It happens to the best of us. Uh, he, he served no jail time. However, this sort of diminished his reputation amongst the status of the old-time Sicilian bosses. So in order to gain it back, Luciano spent a ton of money on 200 expensive-ass seats to the Jack Dempsey versus Louis Frippo fight. And uh, I got to tell you guys, I mean, he knew how to hand them out. You know, he gave, he gave one to anybody who mattered. And he, I mean, he himself previewed the fight, too. 
<clears throat> now, by 1925, it's estimated that Luciano was bringing in roughly $12 million a year from bootlegging and gambling and extortion and things of that nature. Now, of that $12 million, Luciano probably only saw around four. However, in 1925, $4 million is an extravagant amount of money, you guys. I mean, it's, it's otherworldly, especially to somebody coming from nothing like Luciano. By mid to late 20s, you know, Luciano has become the top aide to Joe Mazzaria. I mean, he's his right-hand man and uh, is even reputed to have killed roughly 20 people during the Castamalasi Wars, which uh, was Mazzaria warring against another old-time Don known as Don Salvatore Manzano. And uh, the younger gangsters referred to these old-timers as mustache peats back in the day. It was sort of their little, their little thing they referred to these old-time bosses as, but... Nonetheless, during during the war, uh, between 50 and 100 people are estimated to have died. 50 for sure, you know, high end, 100, but anywhere in between that. Now, Maranzano wanted nothing more than to recruit Lucky. However, Lucky refused him. I mean, he just shut him down. He said, no, I'm loyal to Mazzaria. Forget about it. Uh, during the wars, Luciano formed a tight-knit group uh, known as the Young Turks. Uh, under the guidance of Arnold Rostin and... Of course, with his friend Meyer Lansky, you know, as his confidant all the way along. But, I mean, this group included some really big names, you guys. I mean, they weren't big at the time, but they they would be. I mean, guys like Albert Anastasia, to Joe Adonis, to, uh, you know, Joey Bonanno and Carlo Gambino. And, I mean, even Joe Profaci, Tommy Gagliano, and Tommy Lucchese. <clears throat> Tommy Lucchese. I mean, this was a this was a top-shelf group of guys. You know what I mean? Like... This was like the all-star team as far as gangsters go. I'm not even kidding. You had ha- you had half of them solid, solid racketeer types. And the other half were just vicious, vicious sons of bitches. And then Luciano fell right in that perfect middle and right at the perfect time to sort of systematically clean up the old-time dons and pretty much revamp and rebrand organized crime. However, it wouldn't come without... It wouldn't come without uh, a little bit of a fight. On, uh, in October 1929, Luciano was kidnapped and drove to Staten Island where he was strung up in an abandoned warehouse and tortured and beaten and stabbed for, you know, several hours and then left for dead in the gutter. Now, two theories have uh, surfaced about w- what could have possibly led to this. The one, and probably the most, you know obvious one to anybody who is listening or anybody who, you know, knows the story would be that, uh, Sal Maranzano wanted retaliation for Luciano saying no. Now Maranzano is not a man who got told no very much. So when Luciano did refuse him, I'm sure it sort of struck a foul blow. Now in 1953, however, Luciano told an interviewer that cops are the one who kidnapped him and tortured him because they were looking for another gangster who was on the run, Jack Legs Diamond. Um, now, whether that's ever been proven or not, I, I don't believe it has, but you never know. It did come from the man himself, so who am I to say it wasn't? Now, as, as Luciano progressed, he realizes he needed to, you know, tighten up his groups. And so he set out to form the, the National Crime Syndicate in which all criminals from, you know, all cultures and backgrounds fall, fall under one umbrella and operate as harmoniously as the streets will allow you to to achieve the common goal, which is make money. Now, the NCS was officially founded in May of 1929 after a conference in Atlantic City. Uh, privy to this conference, among others, were Luciano, uh, Johnny Torrio, who was the boss of Chicago at the time, uh, Meyer Lansky, and Frank Costello, of course. 
<clears throat> now, by 1931, Luciano decides that he's had enough of this war, and he decides to align himself with Maranzano to take out Mazzaria, so long as he gets to take over Mazzaria's rackets, and there be no more Capo Duty Capi, which would be boss of bosses, which is what Sal Maranzano pretty much considered himself. Maranzano agrees, and on April 15, 1931, Luciano lures Mazzaria to the Novella Villa Tamaro in Coney Island, uh, which is in, on the ass end of Brooklyn, New York, for lunch and a few hands of cards to uh, quote-unquote, you know, discuss a little business. Now, they ate, and as they played their first hand of pinochle, Luciano excused himself to the restroom. Masaria thought nothing of it. You know, Luciano had been loyal to him for years. I mean, it was his right-hand man. What could go wrong? Moments after Luciano exits into the bathroom, four gunmen burst through the door. Now, the alleged four people that were supposedly the trigger men are Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, uh, Joe Adonis, and Bugsy Siegel. And uh, another gentleman by the name of Ciro Tiranova uh, was the alleged getaway car driver. Now... After Mazzaria's murder, uh, Maranzano appoints, you know, Luciano to boss, as he promised, and the five families of New York are formed. They are the Maranzano, the Luciano, the Profaci, the Magano, and the Gagliano. Now, almost instantaneously after this, Maranzano calls a meeting and declares himself the Capo di Capi, or the boss of bosses, which is the exact thing Luciano was trying to avoid from the beginning. So, you know, after a little turmoil and, you know, Luciano pretty much putting out front and on the line that he didn't agree with Maranzano, um, in September of 1931, Maranzano suspects that Lucky's going to become more of a problem than he's worth. And uh, he enlists the help of an Irish gangster by the name of Vincent Mad Dog Cole to, uh, to do the hit. However, the hit, will never, uh, the hit will never go off because Lucchese manages to catch a tip about this hit, or catch wind, if you will, and warns Luciano about the hit. So, then on September 10th, Maranzano orders Luciano, Genovese, and Costello to come to his office, which is located at 230 Park Avenue in Manhattan. Now, instead of showing up to what would most certainly be their, their desk, they sent four gangsters disguised as tax agents. Uh, Maranzano was having some tax issues and he was expecting, you know, tax agents to pop in and out of his office so they could get in and out without anybody <clears throat> suspecting a thing. Now, the men entered Maranzano's office and they began to perform the hit and Maranzano was a tough, tough son of a bitch. I mean, they shot and stabbed him repeatedly and I, I believe I uh, read or heard somewhere that he was even strangled. I don't know. Don't quote me on that one, but I, I could have swore I'd heard that somewhere. Uh, the hit was so infamous that it was dubbed the Night of the Sicilian Vespers. And, uh, I mean, in 1931, that's quite a, that's quite a notable, notable achievement for organized crime with murders happening every day. That one particular hit stands out because it was so vicious and brutal that, you know, it gets donned a nickname. I mean, that's pretty incredible. They wouldn't find Maranzano, however, until September 13th, uh, when he and his allies, Samuel Monaco and Louis Russo, were all found floating in Newark Bay. Uh, signs of, you know, struggle and torture were pretty evident. As uh, fate would have it, uh, Joseph Saragusa, the leader of the Pittsburgh family, another old-time uh, Don, would be shot to death uh, at his home on September 13th, 1931, <clears throat> uh, at 49 years old. And not even a month later, on October 15th, the uh, acting L.A. Don, 
Joe Erdizani uh, would just disappear sort of off the face of the earth. Um, a lot of people accredit Luciano to having masterminded an entire purge of the old-time Dons. That's just simply not the case. He masterminded Mazzaria, Maranzano, um, the others. Uh, it's, it's, un it's unclear who masterminded those. I believe everybody kind of just liked what Luciano was doing, you know, cleaning out the old and trying to bring in the new. So I feel like, you know, the, the city's, you know, powers that be sort of just followed suit. Now, with Maranzano gone... Uh, Lucky Luciano became the head of the NCS, and uh, along with traditional rackets like loan sharking and bookmaking and, you know, bootlegging and narcotics trafficking and such, Luciano also began to, you know, plug his way into, you know, more legitimate ways of making money, such as labor unions, like the, you know, the Longshoremen's Union or, you know, the Garment District, trucking, you know, garbage carting. I mean, Luciano, Luciano wanted a piece of everything in the city. I mean, he was, if this guy would have been legitimate, he'd have been the CEO of General Motors. I mean, I'm not even kidding. This guy, this guy's amount of, I mean, his amount of ambition and his amount of greed have just always, always impressed me. I mean, Luciano made a powerhouse of a crime family underneath him as well. I mean, uh, Vito Genovese was his underboss, and then he had Frank Costello as his consigliere. Now, Adonis, Michael Trigger, Mike Coppola... Anthony Strollo, Willie Moretti, Anthony Carvano, they were all made captains. So, I mean, you were just talking about every guy I just named will probably have their own episode on here at some point. So, I mean, we're talking we're talking the, the cream of the crop, top shelf, if you will. Now, later in 1931, Luciano would hold a meeting at the Congress Hotel in Chicago to squash all, all gang beef and, you know, sort of divide up turfs and kind of put an end to that old-time era and, you know, the old bloody bootlegging wars that used to just pave the streets or coat the streets of New York City with blood. Um, the commission originally involved the five New York families, the Buffalo crime family, the Chicago outfit, uh, and then there were factions in, you know, Pittsburgh and, you know, different, <clears throat> different sort of variations out in L.A., uh, now, the Philadelphia and the Detroit uh, crime families wouldn't really be recognized until around 1956, although they did have their own bootleggers and gangland warfare, uh, you know, prior to them being on the seats of the commission. But, I mean, you guys, we're talking about taking all these pretty much insignificant, not insignificant, but smaller faction street gangs or, you know crime families loosely put because we're still talking about the era where people are blowing up storefronts and I mean the west coast might think they've invented the drive-by you know in the 90s or the 80s or whatever but <clears throat> these guys were firing Thompson machine guns out out of moving cars at each other since you know since the get <clears throat> now in 1935 <clears throat> a young and eager U.S. district attorney in New York had his sights set on organized crime Thomas E. Dewey would go on a rampage to to dismantle organized crime. Um, not originally starting with Luciano, ironically enough. He actually, his first sights were set on a gangster by the name of Dutch Schultz, who had been an associate of Luciano and Costello, but this sort of had a fallen out. Now, Albert Anastasia informed Luciano that Schultz was planning on taking out Dewey, and Luciano and the commission agreed this would bring way too much heat on the area. You know, things were getting clustered enough as it is. They didn't need it. So on October 23rd, 1935, Schultz is killed by Lepke Bookhalter uh, at an, 
tavern in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, he wouldn't actually die initially. He would succumb to his injuries the following day, which uh, just shows how tough Dutch Schultz was. A uh, little side note, um, Tim Roth, uh, Mr. Orange from Reservoir Dogs, plays a really good Dutch Schultz, and I believe it's Harlem Knights. I'm not 100% sure on the title, but either way, Tim Roth did a great job. <clears throat> now, February 2nd, 1936, uh, Dewey and his team raid around 200 brothels. Now, Luciano had never been huge into prostitution, but he had set up one of his, you know, associates and business partners, Little Davy Battaglio, to, uh, you know, sort of oversee a, a handful of brothels. And uh, due to that fact, he would uh, be the first one sort of subject to a Rico-like charge years before Rico's ever even conceived. Uh, this would come by way of uh, Dewey uh, flipping prostitutes and madams. Uh, a lot of which were just being held, you know, countless hours and were horribly withdrawing from opium or heroin. You know, I mean, there was there was a lot of dope sifting through the streets back then. Luciano himself even smoked, you know, opium on a semi-regular basis. It was just one of those things. So Dewey really, uh, Dewey really took the hot knife to Luciano to uh, try to get a conviction out of him. Now, in March of 1936, Luciano was tipped about the fact that Dewey's planning to have him arrested, and uh, he flees to Hot Springs, Arkansas. It'll be short-lived, though, guys. I mean, on April 1st, 1936, Luciano's extradited right back from Arkansas to New York City. I mean, he begins his legal process. I mean, just months and months of, you know, legal, you know, this and that, and, you know, being denied bail, being stuck in jail. On June 7th, 1936, Luciano was convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. And then on June 18th, 1936, he'll be sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison, which is a hell of a stint for, you know, prostitution. I mean, 62 counts of anything will probably get you a dime piece, but 30 to 50 years, I mean, come on, that seems a bit excessive. Luciano would initially begin serving his time at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Uh, however, because of the vast, you know, tentacles he could still send out from that prison, they would eventually uh, move him on October 10th, 1938. Or excuse me, no, they would move him. They would move him in 1936 to another correctional facility called Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora. Uh, October 10th, 1938, <laughs> the one, you know, the one that I just fucked up before that. Uh, is actually when the Supreme Court refused to see any more appeals on behalf of Luciano. Uh, you know, because your lawyers, they're going to, any good lawyer is going to constantly keep sending appeals, sending appeal, and they were like, nope, we're done. We're done with it. Now, while he's serving time, Luciano does actually do a, a, a handful of con contributions to his country. He, uh, he helped secure the waterfront in New York City uh, when the U.S. Uh, naval forces believe that enemy submarines may be, you know, sifting off the coast. And then he also helped secure different uh, docks and, you know, <clears throat> barracks and things like that over in uh, Sicily. So, I mean, he, he lent his hand in World War II, just like, I mean, just like pretty much 98% of the country. I mean, that was, that was really a time that we had to come together. So on January 3rd, 1946, for his, you know, help and his participation with, you know, assisting the U.S. Naval Forces, which he didn't want to initially do, by the way, Meyer Lansky was the one who sort of, you know, nudged him into it. Uh, Luciano was pardoned, however, he's deported and told to never step foot in the United States again. February 2nd, 1946, Luciano's moved to Ellis Island to get ready for transport. February 9th, 1946, Luciano was deported to Italy and he would arrive February 28th. 
and Naples, Sicily. Now, I mean, being stagnant drove him nuts, you guys. So he set up a pipeline to traffic heroin in to the United States. And, I mean, it, it's, it served him immensely. He, uh, he still got to live the lavish lifestyle that he, you know, come to enjoy and come to be accustomed to. Uh, but it still wouldn't be enough. He, he missed the action and he couldn't stay in one place for too long. So in October of 1946, Luciano secretly moves to Havana where Meyer Lansky is running a slew of casinos, you know, under the reign of, uh, Batista, you know, and everything was going smooth until on February 21st, 1947, between the U.S. Narcotics Commissioner, Henry J. Anslinger, and the Cuban government, uh, Luciano's eventually sent back to Gianna, Italy. Uh, this was because the U.S. Narcotics Commissioner uh, pretty much shut down the export of narcotics from Cuba. I mean, they, they stopped every load every, every until Luciano was dealt with, was their stipulations. And the uh, Cuban government, who was sort of running like a, almost a guerrilla warfare unit at the time, I mean, a little more uh, pristine than that, but similar, uh, I mean, needed to, needed to move those narcotics out. That's a, that's a big... Uh, economic boost for them. So they obliged and uh, Luciano was sent back to Italy. Now Luciano continues to have legal problems, you know, up until the day he dies, you guys. I mean, between, you know, customs authorities and just the regular Italian police and then, you know, anybody who can half stick a microscope under Luciano is, is going to, um, including filmmakers, which is uh, ironic because he began to talk with a filmmaker about making a movie about his life. Um, the commission heavily disagreed. I mean, obviously, with uh, without needing much explanation why they they were still doing their things. And I mean, he's just sort of on a permanent vacation, so he's like, "Fuck it." But they're like, "No, man, we're you know we're still doing what we do here." But luckily for them, it, it would never have to happen because on January 26, 1962, as he was uh, attempting to meet up with this film director uh, at the Naples International Airport. Luciano uh, keels over and dies from a heart attack. There's been a lot of speculation on whether or not he was poisoned. From everything I've ever read, it really was just a, you know, true to blue heart attack. I mean, the man drank, smoked, smoked opium. I mean, probably, you know, partook in cocaine from time to time. I mean, everything was just so kind of readily available. And I mean, they didn't really know much about all the drugs and all that back then. So everybody just sort of, whatever made you feel good. I mean, Luciano's legacy stands for itself. He, he is the chairman, founder, and CEO of the modern-day American Mafia. And uh, the, he would leave control of his family, the Luciano family, to his consigliere, Frank Costello, who would eventually be overthrown by Vito Genovese, which we'll get into on, on a separate podcast. But then the family would be renamed from Luciano to Genovese. And... Uh, that would sort of be the end of his name, uh, like, as the handle of a crime family. But it would never be the end of Charlie Lucky Luciano. I mean, there just is no, there is no end to Charlie Lucky Luciano. His infamy will live on forever. Uh, some fun little facts about Luciano, though, is uh, if you can, you can sift through different photos of him in his later life, and he's got a tiny little, I don't know if it's a chihuahua or it's a, it's a small little, you know, he like a woman who carry it in her purse type of dog and uh apparently according to a tourist who had a conversation with him when he was on vacation in Italy Luciano told him that uh the dog's name was Bambi and you know the the tourist was sort of taken him you know taken back and when he asked you know why Bambi Luciano responded you know because I like fairy tales 
I mean, on top of that, Luciano enjoyed art and literature, and he actually said uh, the only reason he never had children was because he wouldn't want to have to have uh, a child, like, in particular his son, grow up with, you know, his name, with people knowing who his dad was. And uh, one there was this quote I read one time, which will, which will pretty much be how we send it off, that Luciano said he only had two regrets in life, that he was uneducated and that he spoke, spoke with a very thick New York accent. And uh, apparently those were the only two regrets a man like him, you know, could possibly have. I mean, what else could you have? You've done everything else. Well, from all of us here at Wise Guys Hideaway, I really appreciate you all stopping by. Uh, pop in this weekend where hopefully me and Gunnar Lindblom will be uh, shooting the shit and uh, chatting up Mob Movie Con, our thing clothing apparel, and uh, maybe a little bit of Gunnar's life running the streets of Detroit being a enforcer for the Detroit Mafia. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day.